0: In our uh, study through Revelation, we've reached now the, the, the final message to the seven churches. Uh, every church needs all seven messages to make it to the new Jerusalem. But if I chose one that speaks to an area, the Western church is particularly vulnerable. Uh, it would be Jesus' message to, to Laodicea. And I say that because the contents of this seventh message deal with an affluent church. It's not like the church in Smyrna that was economically poor. It's not like the church in Philadelphia that had little resources. The church in Laodicea is rich with the world's goods, but that wealth has made them vulnerable to self-sufficiency. And this this attitude of, I need nothing. And that self-sufficiency has led to complacency, a complacency that makes Jesus sick to his stomach. So being part of a more affluent society in America, we would do well to pay careful attention to Jesus' words. Our Lord says in verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, So that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So as he does in the other six messages, Jesus begins by reminding the church of his glorious identity. He reminds the church of his glorious identity. Jesus is the Amen. The word Amen usually signals a strong affirmation. We've heard it twice already in chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 7. And throughout Revelation, there are seven of them, throughout Revelation, it echoes from God's creatures as they celebrate God's worth and God's works coming to their completion in Jesus. But even more, God identifies himself in Isaiah 65, verse 16, as Elohe, Amen the God of Amen, the God of truth. And in that same passage, Isaiah 65, verse 16, he goes on in verse 17 to, to, to talk about his promises to create a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells with his people in joy forever. And so for Jesus to say here that he is the Amen means that he embodies that God is true to his word. His enthroned presence in heaven signals that all of God's purposes will reach their goal in the new creation. He is also the faithful and true witness. Jesus faithfully and truthfully bore witness to God throughout his earthly ministry, even when that meant that he would go to the cross and suffer and die. For that pure witness. And even more, Jesus continues to stand as a faithful witness in his resurrection body. And so you have this faithful, the true faithful witness who is now assessing this church's witness. Jesus is also the beginning of God's creation, beginning not in the sense of of the first created thing, like maybe some of the the Mormon and and Jehovah Witnesses' neighbors would would say. But it's beginning here in the sense of first cause, the originator. Several times in Revelation, God or Jesus has the title, the beginning and the end. It recalls the way God reveals himself in Isaiah. He uh, He sets himself apart from the nations and their idols, their false gods, the true God, Is creator. He he creates by his sovereign word. He knows the end from the beginning. And the same is being said here now of Jesus. Now, ruler of God's creation is also a possible translation. Uh, Some of the English translation versions have that. And and that would fit how the message to Laodicea uh, Laodicea ends on the note of Jesus' throne. At the same time, if Jesus is the originator of God's creation, necessarily that makes him the ruler over it. Now, I think these three titles, they they complement one another. Jesus not only originates God's creation, but in faithfulness and truth, his work ensures That all things will climax in the praise of God's glory in the new creation. That's who he is. And that Jesus is the one that's walking among the churches and he's weighing their faithfulness. And he has found the church in Laodicea wanting. Their witness does not align with God's glory in the new creation. So let's look now at Jesus rebuking their complacency and self-sufficiency. Jesus rebukes their complacency and self-sufficiency. Okay, So like the message to Sardis, okay, Jesus has nothing to commend here. In fact, it's even worse than Sardis because there's not even a few who haven't soiled their garments. There's not even a few who've remained faithful. In verse 15 Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, or better, I am about to vomit you from my mouth. So there's this this window of for repentance remains open, but the judgment is near. I am about to vomit you from my mouth. For Jesus to vomit them from his mouth means their eternity is at stake. It's a severe warning here, much like when God warns uh, Israel that the land would vomit them out for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. But what's the problem here with with lukewarmness. Well, some have taken cold to mean a person with no interest in Jesus and hot to mean someone who's really, really excited about Jesus. But that doesn't fit what Jesus says in verse 15. Would that you were either cold or hot, Jesus wishes for them. So being cold or hot are both good things. The context is that of feasting together, okay, eating together in verse twenty, drinking together in verses fifteen to sixteen. People like their beverages cold or hot. Okay? nobody likes warm Gatorade at noon, All right? Or on a cool morning, nobody likes coffee. At room temperature, a a lukewarm beverage is useless. And by analogy, that's the way this church has become, in Jesus' eyes, useless. Colossians four thirteen tells us that Epaphras had planted this church, and he had labored really hard for their maturity. And not even two generations passed before Jesus sends this letter. They have become lukewarm nothing sets them apart anymore. In the same way that you, you can't tell the difference between the outside climate and a lukewarm drink when you put your finger in it, you can't tell the difference between the cultural climate and these lukewarm Christians. They look just like the world. They bring nothing of kingdom value. They've grown useless and complacent. How did they get there, though? Verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. How did they grow complacent? They lost all dependence on Christ because they think they have it all. I need nothing. Their riches have duped them into thinking that they're okay Without Jesus. And and here's the scarier part. Jesus describes this church with language that also describes the merchants in Revelation 18 who grow rich on Babylon's luxurious living. So this church has become indistinguishable from the beastly kingdoms of the earth who find their satisfaction in wealth. Worldly comforts, Have led them to a place where they claim Jesus, but no longer depend on him. They claim Jesus, but no longer fellowship with him. Why else is he outside the door knocking? Because they have said, I need nothing. They have pushed Jesus out, and they are in danger of judgment. In mercy, though, Jesus returns them to his riches with his counsel. He returns them to his riches. In verse 18, he counsels them to buy from, them, buy from him three unique riches. Okay, and before we get to them, though, how are they going to buy anything? Anything that's truly valuable costs. But he just said they were pitiable poor blind and naked. So spiritually speaking, they are bankrupt people. How can you buy anything from God when you are spiritually bankrupt? Well, the imagery here is recalling God's invitation to Israel in Isaiah 55. Israel had bankrupt themselves on chasing the world's idols instead of using their silver... Uh, to, to, for the Lord's purposes to advance His kingdom, they had spent their silver on idols. There's a description of the, they get their... They work hard, they get their silver, they get paid in silver, and then they go to the silversmith and, he, and get him to craft it into an idol. And God comes to these people in Isaiah 55, and He says... He says, Come, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, he who has no silver, because you blew it all on your idols, he who has no silver, come, buy, and eat. How do you buy from God when you're spiritually bankrupt? You're only able to buy because God paid the price for you to receive his riches. You see, before Isaiah 55, there's another chapter in Isaiah 53. God's servant would pay the price for God's people to inherit God's riches. That's why God says, come. Jesus is the servant who paid the price for the church to receive these riches. Jesus gave his own life to purchase for us the riches we couldn't purchase. How did you say it earlier when you read from 2 Corinthians 8-9? He who was rich became poor for our sake so that by his poverty we might become rich. That is the good news. And so Jesus counsels these pitiable poor Christians and he says, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. He doesn't mean actual gold in this life. As, as Revelation continues, there's a contrast. In chapter 17 and 18, Babylon is a city that is adorned with, with gold, only it's a gold that isn't truly refined and and, uh, and it's not pure, and it also doesn't last. When God brings judgment on, on, on the rebel kingdoms of the earth, all of their riches comes crashing down. And so if your hopes are bound up with the world's riches, you will encounter an eternity of sorrow. That's the message of, of Revelation. But for those who hope in Jesus and his kingdom... Well, they will inherit another city. God's new Jerusalem is a city made of pure gold, it says, like clear glass. That's the gold that Jesus offers his his church. It's another way of saying, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in the kingdom that is to come, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, Jesus also says to buy from him white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. In Revelation, white garments symbolize purity, righteousness. In chapter 7, verse 14, the faithful in white garments, it says that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But then we also find this in chapter 19, verse 8. When, when we're approaching the marriage supper of the Lamb and it describes the bride of Christ, it says that it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So to buy white garments from Jesus means not only coming to Jesus for purification but also following Jesus in righteous deeds. When you neglect a relationship with Jesus, your shameful deeds leave you exposed like someone without clothes. Your shameful deeds leave you like Adam and Eve when they disobeyed the Lord and hid themselves. But when you invest in a relationship with Jesus, your works clothe you like a bride who's getting ready to meet her husband. Will your works leave you exposed? Or will they evidence how much you have longed to see your husband? Jesus also says, buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Okay, he's talking about spiritual sight. Without Jesus opening our spiritual eyes, we cannot see ourselves or the world or Jesus rightly. We will be like the man in Deuteronomy 16 who is blinded by a bribe such that he perverts justice. He's attracted to the bribe, to the money and what money can do. And it blinds him to doing what's right. We will be like Israel in Isaiah 42 who could even read God's law. They could read the black ink on... I guess they didn't have ink back then. Whatever they were reading on. They could read God's law and lack the spiritual perception to do the right thing. We will be like those in 2 Corinthians 4, whom Satan blinds from seeing the light of Jesus' glory. We will be like the church in Laodicea, who thinks that they see themselves accurately, but they are actually blind to their true need. They are blind to their pitiable state. So to gain true spiritual perception, Jesus counsels us to come to Him. He alone can heal the eyes of your heart. He alone has the medicine you need to view the world as He does, to perceive God's ways rightly and then to walk in them. In some, then, this church thinks that they need nothing. In truth, they need Jesus for everything that's of ultimate importance, lasting riches, righteous works, spiritual insight. And so if that's the case, this church needs to repent. They need to zealously pursue Jesus. That's the primary command in verse 19. Be zealous and repent. Don't waste any time, in other words. Turn from your complacency and self-reliance and start investing deeply in your relationship with Jesus and your obedience to Him in the world. Get serious about following through with repentance. And then we get three reasons why to follow through. Jesus reassures them of his love, his fellowship, and his dominion. So one reason to follow through with repentance is that Jesus reassures his love. Jesus has said some hard things. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You are wretched. You are pitiable. But verse 19 adds this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So Jesus' discipline is loving. This alludes to Proverbs 3, verse 12, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. When someone is blind, it is not loving to let them fall into the pit. When someone is acting shamefully, it's not loving to coddle them in their sins. Love will always be a genuine affection for another's good in God, in what's holy. And that's how Jesus loves. He has an affection for their good in God, and so he rebukes and counsels and corrects. Jesus loves not only by redeeming them from sin, but also by rebuking when they return to sin. And he does the same for us. Another reason to follow through with repentance is that Jesus reassures them of his fellowship. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him And he with me. Now, people have used this passage to evangelize the lost. You know, they might say something like, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. But notice who it's written to here. This message is written to the church, it is written to believers. Also, it's not talking about Jesus coming into your heart. The picture is Jesus entering a house. To sit down at a meal with his guests. It's still a call to intimate fellowship, just not in the ways that our Christian subcultures have sometimes taught us. The point is that the church has pushed Jesus out with their attitudes of, I need nothing. They have traded intimacy with Jesus to make friends with worldly comforts. And what a display of great compassion that Jesus comes offering them renewed fellowship. Now, it's possible that Jesus' teaching in the Gospels also lies in the background here. There's several places where he uses this imagery of standing at the door or knocking to compel a very urgent response, right? If Jesus is knocking, then judgment is near. And to open the door means following through with repentance. To open the door is to treat the king as he deserves, to hear his voice, invite him in, sit him down, and serve him. And when that takes place, he promises to renew intimate fellowship. Now, Jesus likely means intimate uh, intimate fellowship in the present, like in the here and now. But that intimate fellowship that we share with Jesus now actually anticipates the day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that table will remind us of that too when we eat together later. Finally, Jesus gives another reason to follow through with repentance, and that is dominion. Verse 21 says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered And sat down with my Father on his throne. Notice, as I also conquered. How does someone conquer the same way Jesus did? We become faithful and true witnesses. We submit to our Father's word in the path of obedience. Even when it means death. We go for the crown by first taking up our cross In love for others. And when we choose that path, Jesus holds out a glorious reward. We will share in his dominion. Now sitting with Jesus on his throne includes authority. Right? We saw this in chapter uh, 2, verse 26, uh, where, where we will enjoy authority with Jesus over the nations. But more than that, sitting with Jesus on his throne includes nearness to God. There are other thrones in Revelation surrounding the one true throne. And Jesus seats us with himself, where we will behold him face to face, where the Lord God will be our light as we reign with him forever. It's no accident that Jesus promises fellowship on his throne, and then In chapters 4 and 5, he opens a heavenly door to that throne. A throne that's wrapped in rainbow-like emerald beauty with jasper and carnelian decorating the royal majesty. At least part of Jesus' goal... In chapters 4 and 5, where we see this throne is to generate repentance in his complacent people through a vision of God's glory. You set the glories of God's throne against the riches of this world. Who wouldn't want to share in the throne of God and of the Lamb? Right? The riches of this world are nothing in, in comparison to the Lamb's throne. Jesus has found this church in a pitiable and poor state. But he offers them the highest place and portion if they repent. You don't get any higher. You don't get any more glorious than God's throne. And so we have Jesus' love, Jesus' fellowship, Jesus' dominion... That's his reassurance for why the church should follow through with repentance as if the glorious riches he mentions in verse 18 weren't enough. Jesus is mounting riches on top of riches to renew his church's zeal for his kingdom. And he means for these riches to renew our zeal as well. One way Jesus' words confronted me was in considering whether I have become lukewarm? Have I grown complacent in my witness? Have I grown complacent in my leadership? Have I grown complacent in my marriage and in my parenting and in my brotherhood to the brothers and sisters here? How about you? Have you Considered whether you are lukewarm this morning. Some of you are very zealous for the kingdom, and I'm very thankful for that. I hope your zeal stirs up others. But I think others need to take an honest assessment and ask whether you've settled into a self sufficient complacency without realizing your true need. What does your pursuit of the Lord in prayer look like? Maybe you haven't uttered the words, I need nothing. But if someone looked at your prayer life, would they see a desperate need for Jesus? Or would they see someone who doesn't seem to need Jesus very much? Prayerlessness is the result of self-sufficiency. How distinct is your life from the culture around you? Our lives are going to overlap with the world in some very basic ways. But are there things you do for Jesus' sake that set you apart from the world, that, that compel others to ask about the hope that is within you? Or if they put their finger in your cup, would they really be able to tell the difference? What excites you? Would fellowship with Jesus top the list? Or has your zeal for lesser things surpassed your zeal for Christ? Many things in this world animate us. It's not a matter of whether or not we're zealous. It's a matter of what we're zealous for. And there are lots of things that animate us. Sports, politics, high grades, favorite hobbies, an unexpected raise. But would you say God's kingdom excites you more than, than all of these combined? Have you grown stagnant in your maturity? Have you, have you grown accustomed to kind of coasting along behind the zealous efforts of a few others? Maybe it's a godly husband. Maybe it's a godly wife. Maybe it's godly parents. Maybe it's other godly church members or, or maybe godly care group leaders. They make zealous efforts and labor and serve while you just kind of coast along But never really pursue Christ yourself. Never actively serve and give at your own initiative. Hey, these few are doing it all. If you find yourself lukewarm, well, Jesus wrote this message to wake you up. Jesus wrote this message to alert you to the dangers ahead if you continue down this path. Jesus wrote this message to restore your zeal and passion for Him. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves. Respond to His loving correction here with repentance. Second, stay alert to the dangers of wealth. Stay alert to the dangers of both. I can't help but notice that Smyrna and Philadelphia, the two churches that are economically poor and powerless, are the two churches that are spiritually rich. Laodicea, however, is economically rich but spiritually poor. And given what the Bible teaches elsewhere, that shouldn't surprise us. Wealth on its own isn't bad. It's a gift from the Lord. It can be used for good. To support your family or to meet somebody else's needs or to build a city or to bless someone with gifts. At the same time, Jesus teaches that the deceitfulness of riches can choke out God's word, such that it becomes unfruitful in our lives. Matthew 13:22. Jesus warns that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew nineteen twenty three. Or consider 1 Timothy 6. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith. The church in Laodicea has not heeded these warnings. They have set their hope in wealth, such that they have no need of Jesus anymore. And we're just as vulnerable. In America, a land that's not only very prosperous, but is just prone to doing everything ourselves, we're even more vulnerable. Are you afraid? Buy an alarm system. Are you sick? Pay the doctor. Is it broken? Order now from Amazon you got hardships, we've got insurance. Threats, we've got guns. Lost, Google Maps. Like when that's your culture that you're living and breathing every day, you're at risk, really high risk, for getting to be like Laodicea. For getting into that place where you function like I need nothing. When in truth, you need Jesus for everything. It's so easy to push Jesus away while leaning on your wealth to save you, to uphold you, to satisfy you, to solve all your problems. So stay alert and keep turning to Jesus for true riches. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Work toward a proper vision and use for wealth so that it serves Jesus' kingdom like what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 to the rich, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for the future. Third, ask Jesus for new eyes. Ask Jesus for new eyes. The eye salve gets mentioned uh, last in verse 18, but as one of my uh, teachers, Paul Hoskins, liked to point out, uh, logically speaking, it's the first one we need. If they they remain blind, he'd say, then they cannot hope to see their sin and repent of it. And I think he's right. Just think of all the ways Scripture highlights this fundamental need that we have of spiritual sight. Without God opening our eyes, we can't behold wondrous things from his law. Psalm 119, verse 18. Without God enlightening our eyes, we cannot know the hope of our calling. Ephesians 1, verse 18. Without Jesus opening their eyes, the disciples could not even perceive who he was after the resurrection. Without Jesus granting new eyes, the disciples can't perceive that the fields are white for harvest. Remember this with the woman at the well? They're concerned about their lunchbox and whether Jesus has had anything to eat. And Jesus is like, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. They needed new eyes. It's all over the place in Scripture. Without spiritual sight, we cannot see the things of God. And so ask Jesus to give you new eyes. Ask him to help you see yourself and the world and him as you need to see those things. And then as you're asking, read his word. Revelation is part of Jesus' work by the Spirit to open our eyes. Revelation is giving you the proper way to see yourself and the world. In today's passage, it should be helping you see your desperate need of Jesus. So if you're here today, perhaps he has already begun that work in you. Keep asking for new eyes. And then finally, renew your zeal for Jesus. Renew your zeal for Jesus. Jesus' command, be zealous, fits other passages on Christian zeal. I'm not sure we talk about Christian zeal enough, uh, but it was among the chief virtues the church emphasized. Romans twelve eleven, for example. Do not be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Uh, Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself on the cross, says to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In Second Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 9.2, Paul was taking up a, a collection for the poor back in Jerusalem and he writes the church in Corinth, describing how the church in Corinth, is, their, their zeal and generosity had stirred up the other churches in Macedonia to give. There is, of course, false zeal as well. The Jews in Romans ten two have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Otherwise, they'd see Christ as the goal of the law. But where there is true godly zeal, there will be a passion to love God and to serve God with all that the Spirit gives us through Jesus. A Puritan named John Reynolds uh, once defined zeal this way, an earnest desire and concern for all things pertaining to the glory of God and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus among men. Do you have an earnest desire and concern for all things pertaining to the glory of God and the kingdom of Jesus among men? Well, If not, Jesus is encouraging us to pursue that. He is commanding us to pursue that. And if you do have it, keep cultivating it. Just as he called the church in Laodicea to be zealous, Christ is calling us to be zealous for his kingdom. He's calling us away from complacency to total allegiance. He's calling us away from lukewarm, dull, just coasting along with the world type of church to being a church that fervently bears witness to Jesus and his kingdom. So would you join each other in praying for this kind of zeal? Would you stir one another up to this kind of zeal? Would you point each other to Jesus, who has unwavering zeal for his Father's glory? It's by seeing Jesus and knowing this faithful and true witness that our zeal will also grow. I was tucking Abby into bed Sunday night after we discussed her Dig Sunday School lesson last week. And with great excitement, she says, Daddy, I just can't stop thinking about God never having a birthday. That he was never born. I mean, he just always was there. And it's so amazing that, that I just can't stop the feeling. Right? Don't worry, nothing Justin Timberlake-like broke out after that. But... It was this sweet reminder to me that zeal comes from meditating on the glories of God in Christ. So may the Lord cause holy zeal in us as we continue studying Revelation, especially as we get to the throne next Sunday, Lord willing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Father, I ask that you would take your word, plant it deep within us, and cause it to bear much fruit. Make us a zealous people for Christ. Guard us from the love of money. Set our eyes and affections upon you. We do that now, even as we come to the table. Amen.